Today's episode of the CSMAC Podcast is brought to you by Morton. Over the past couple months, you've heard me give my firsthand experience of drinking the world's most carbohydrate-rich sports drink. Um, It's worked for me at the Berlin Marathon and New York City Marathon. I'll be using it again for the London Marathon in April. I've said how it's worked for uh, Elliot Kipchoge, Wilson Kipsang, uh, and all the major marathon winners. Recently, actually, this past weekend, Paul Chalimo, U.S. champion at 3,000 and 1,500 meters, uh, he is also drinking Morton. But I stumbled across a photo of a sprinter using it, and I was really curious. It was like, how does that work for a sprinter? How is a sprinter taking the same drink that uh, distance runners are crushing during marathons and long runs? And I got my answer from one of the guys at Morton, and he said that sprinters are using it for recovery either during or immediately after hard sessions and this makes it very easy for them to control meal sizes and it helps them keep the quality of their workout after a really tough day so uh, it's really eye-opening that Morton is working for sprinters it's working for distance runners it's working for soccer players the Tottenham Hotspurs it's working for cyclists so I urge you guys check it out it's Morton that's m-a-u-r-t-e-n dot com slash shop use promo code cmp20 for 20 percent off your order more talk about morton later on in the show my guest for today's episode is alex hutchinson he is the author of endure mind body and the curiously elastic limits of human performance he's also a writer for outside magazine Um, he had a regular training column for runner's world for several years He's also been published in Popular Mechanics as well as the New York Times. And in October, he joined Outside to continue publishing his Sweat Silence column. His byline might be pretty familiar with runners because last year he covered the Nike Breaking 2 project very closely and extensively for Runner's World. And so we talk a little bit about that on the show. Personally, I highly recommend his new book, which is you know found at Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble's, wherever you get your books. I'm sure they'll have a copy of it. Um, I was able to get an advanced copy. I thought it was great. You learn a lot about pushing the, your limits pretty much with your mind. It's not just all physical. There's a you know, psychological aspect to uh, ex- extraordinary and incredible performances that we've seen over the years. So uh, I got five stars, I believe, in its uh, review from Let's Run.com, if you guys uh, trust them. Malcolm Gladwell has a quote on the cover it says this book is amazing amazing with all capital letters so you can take all our words for it it's a good book check it out get it wherever books are sold but without further ado this is alex hutchinson let's start the show All right, we're joined now on the CSMAC podcast by Alex Hutchinson. He's the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. So, Alex, uh, welcome to the show. And first off, congrats on the release of the book. Uh, It was apparently eight years in the making. Yeah, it's definitely a test of endurance. So, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And it's it's great to have it finally out in the world because it's, uh, yeah, it was it was. You know, it's not like I've been working full time for eight years, but it, it, I was—I've been telling interviewers or interviewees, uh, actually, maybe even nine years now, that uh, I'm working on this big book. You're going to see it really soon, and I'm sure they all were like, "That guy was lying," but um, <laughs> it, it's—it is a book now. <laughs> uh, so, take us, I guess, through the process of you know how this idea came to be. I know, you know, talking to you know, other writers who you know, started off writing for magazines or, uh, usually it's one article that really hits. And then from there, it's kind of like, okay, I can write a whole book on a similar topic to the, based off one article for uh, my buddy, David Epstein. It was an article he wrote for sports illustrated. And from there it turned into the sports gene. Uh, so for you, I guess, did you have something similar to that or, uh, how did, how did the idea come about? Yeah, this was a little different because this is this was actually something that predates even my my magazine career. Really, you know, the, I've been kind of fascinated by the limits of endurance just because of my background as a runner, and so that 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 was there for a long time. And when I became a journalist, I was writing about the science of 
of fitness, the science of endurance a little bit. And I, you know, I can't remember exactly when I first came across Tim Noakes's central governor theory, but I started to come across, he had, you know, he had some work on the central governor theory, but he also had work questioning the sort of conventional body as a machine view of like hydration and other stuff like that. And I thought, and, and so before I had written, I, I'd written some like small newspaper articles about this stuff, but before I had written a big magazine article, I thought this, this is a book. This is, you know, this is a, a you know, a radical, this is a total rethink of, of how we think of endurance. So it was kind of the other way around, but then I thought, well, I, you know, financially and logistically, I can't just write a book right now and I need time. I need years to, to, to research this. So I started pitching magazine articles, um, in, in that, you know, in towards that topic. And I, it ended up that, you know, for five or six years, I was doing magazine stories where in the back of my mind, I was like, this is going to give me a chance to go to South Africa and talk to Tim Noakes, or this is going to give me a chance to go to Britain and talk to Samuel Marcora. So, so it became a kind of gathering of string process where at a certain point I realized, so I should say right, right out that the book isn't what I thought it was going to be eight years ago. I thought it was going to be the Tim Noakes show basically. And, but as I got into it, it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than I, than I realized. And there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, divergent views and, and controversies that are ongoing. And I realized I could keep researching the book for the next 15 years and there'd still be new stuff every few months. Uh, but I wouldn't have a book and I, and I, you know, and I wouldn't be able to pay my rent and all these things. So at a certain point I just decided, okay, I've, I've got to write the book, even though I know as has happened that like the moment I submitted the book, there'd be like another study the next week where I'd be like, Oh, I'd love to put that smiling study and running efficiency study in the book, but it's too late. You gotta, you gotta make your choice. We'll come back to the central governor theory in, in a bit, but so real quick, I mean, I had a teacher in high school, who worked on a book. It was a fiction book. He worked on it for like 10 years. And I think he got a million dollar advance once it came out from his publisher. It was, it was a big deal, uh, right? Your, your jaw just dropped. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, everyone could wish that's the case for, for their first book. Um, it's definitely not about the money, but I guess and that's a, that's a plus, you know, whenever a book does really well, when you're spending time actually, you know, sitting down to, to write it, uh, how did you stay motivated knowing that, you know, this wasn't a thing that was going to be done in a year? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, so I, one thing that is, is that I had a bit of a previous, previous experience. I have, I have two previous books and the first one was actually the classic. I wrote a magazine a, article for popular mechanics about like the top inventions of the modern era. And, and then they asked me or a publisher asked me to turn that into a book. And that was like a, a, a total sausage factory uh, job. And I, I don't mean to speak down about the book, but it was like, uh, qu- quick and dirty, it just sort of like pad out the magazine article, turned it into a book. And so I, I don't take a lot of personal pride in that book. And I, I also didn't have an agent and, and, you know, was dramatically underpaid for that book. So, you know, I don't get royalties for the book or anything. That book is like, I, I, I almost don't mention. Um, my last book I'm more proud of, it's called, uh, it has a terrible title. It's called, which comes first cardio or weights, um, fitness myths, training truths, and this surprising, I can't even remember the title, but it's, it's, a, it's more of a practical book. It's like, uh, you know, what do we know about the evidence on stretching before exercise or, or on things like that? And it was, you know, it was a good book for, for where I was at. And it, it gave me a reason to, to dig into the, the literature, uh, the fitness, uh, the science literature and, and learn a lot but it's not the kind of thing that you finish at the end and, and you're like, wow, this was my magnum opus. When I was a kid, I dreamed of, of writing a, a, you know, a Q and a guide to, to the science of fitness. So when I, when I started this one and, and, you know, and you also having written a couple of books, you, you ha- I had a more realistic sense of, you know, the economics of book writing and that you don't write a book and then go, you know, lie on the beach for the next 15 years on a big pile of royalties. It's, it, it's a, it's a tough business. So I thought this one, you know what, I don't want to stress about whether I'm going to reach a huge audience or be a massive success because that's kind of out of your control. Like it's, it's a, it's a low probability shot to write like a bestseller or anything like that. You don't, it's not rational to try to set out with that goal. So it's like, I just want to write the book that I would want to read. And, and, and so in terms of motivation to actually get back to the question you asked, it was a lot easier to stay motivated for this because I was actually like, I, I was digging every chapter. It was so much fun to have a chance to say, 
all right, I'm going to follow this rabbit hole down and, and really learn about the physiology of climbing Everest without supplemental oxygen. And I'm going to spend way more time than I would normally be able to justify doing something like this, but, but it's for the book. So I'm allowed to, to, to just follow my nose and have fun and, and, and find great stories and tell them. So that, I mean, and, and that's one of the reasons it took so long is because it was kind of fun. I could have keep, kept doing it for another couple of years if, if, if the constraints of reality didn't intervene. So, you know, you, you always have to keep an eye on like, are you making a living? But for the, for me, this one was really about having fun and, and doing the, writing the book that I would want to read and that I would be proud of for the rest of my life. How hard is it to write a book in, you know, the sports science field? Because over the last couple of years, we've, and it, it might be, I'm just trying to remember from my recent memory. I remember college sports team came out. It was a hit immediately. Everyone, you know, was talking about it. Uh, you know, my boss here at sports illustrated, uh, Mark McCluskey has his own book, higher, faster, stronger. Last year, big hit was Magnus and Stolberg's book. Um, so it, when you're trying to write a book of your own, is there any like is there a point where you're just kind of you're, where you're reading some of these other books and you're just like, man, I was going to cite that one too. And it's it's like there's there's definitely an overlap you see across you know some of the findings and theories that that people come up with in these books. So is that a challenge that that you saw with this book? For sure, and you know, like when I read Mark McCluskey's book. It's just a great book, and this, he, you know, he gets into some of the stuff that I get into, like Samuel Marcora's research. And I read that, and and yeah, I was kind of like, "Hey, that's a great book. I'm so happy for him. Oh, darn it! I was hoping to be like the first guy to to talk about that stuff in in a book. So that's inevitable. And you know, for for David Epstein's book, uh, it's the great thing about David's book. I read it, and I th- and I, you know, I read an advanced copy because I was reviewing it, and I and I thought, wow, this is a really great book. It's got you know all this these layers of complexity. It doesn't try and come away with like a serial box top answer to everything. Too bad it's going to flop because it's just too co- too complex and nuanced to succeed in the market. And so when it when it took off, I was happy for David, who's a great guy, but I was also happy for me because I was like. Hey, there's an audience of people who are really interested in getting into the the nuances and the details. So, so that was encouraging. And the the, the other thing on that on, on that note is like, I've had this conversation with David a number of times where it's like, look, we're all human, and and it's impossible not to feel the sort of like, uh, you know, not so much competition, but you know, you want to you want to have your own area where where you're the expert. But David always makes the point. It's like. It's not that like everyone in the world buys one book. Right. And if they buy Joe's book, they're not going to buy Bob's book. In fact, there's a small subset of people who buy a ton of books. And if they buy a book about a topic that they like, that they're more likely to buy another book about about a similar topic because they realize that there's a, there's new things in this area. So look, if you write exactly the same book as someone else, you're, that's bad news for everybody. But if if you can add something new to the area, even if you're you're, you're obviously you know you're always overlapping on areas that other people have written before. But, but if you're adding something to the conversation, the people who've enjoyed those previous books are going to enjoy the new book too, for the most part. It's not like they're just going to read one book on the topic and it's like, okay, now I know everything about that. <laughs> right. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have listeners who've read some of those other books and coming away from this, they'll, they'll check yours out. So getting into the book now, I guess a big focal point of it is, you know, how the brain and mind, you know, plays a role in the limits of, of the human body. And so I guess without, taking too much away from the, the introductory chapters, I guess, could you explain to listeners, I guess, how we got to this point of wanting to understand the mind? Because at first the, the body comes first when it comes to performance, we know, you know, what are the limits of, you know, as far as the body goes, but the mind, when did that become a, a point where, you know, it's something we should definitely examine more. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, the 20th century was this period where we, where physiologists made huge progress in understanding the physiological limits, the, the stuff like VO2 max, lactate threshold, um, running economy, all these, all these sorts of things. Um, and of course that's, the, the, you know, that's, that's crucial, right? Like it, it, it doesn't matter if I become like the, a total jujitsu master, master I, I'm not going to go win the Olympics in snowboarding because I don't have the physical attributes. So, the body's important, but but it got to the point where people kind of realized that no matter how how much physiological knowledge you gain about someone, you could, you send a bunch of athletes to the lab and spend a week measuring every inch of their bodies and their their interiors, you're still not going to be able to predict who's actually going to win 
a race among them if they're if they're well matched athletes. You're not going to be able to predict predict the Olympic champion based on physiology. And 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 look, I should emphasize that it, it, it's not like people in the 20th century were like the brain has nothing to do with it. We you know they all understood that the brain had a role, but it was it seemed it felt kind of separate. It was in a separate silo in the sports psychology department, which was way down the hallway in the basement or whatever, away from the exercise physiology. And so people wanted to try and start kind of quantifying. And, and integrating the, these two and understanding, okay, how does the, the, the brain play its role, which we know it plays a role. How, how, how does it get in there? So there, there was a cup. The first wave is like in the mid nineties or late nineties, Tim Noakes in South Africa. He's the guy most associated with this, uh, this idea called the central governor, which is that the brain is you're, that you're kind of evolutionarily wired to make sure you never actually reach physical limits. So the point where you feel you're, and that's, that's for self-protection. So the point where you feel you, you're hitting a limit, you're actually, it's not that your muscles can't go. It's that your brain thinks you shouldn't go any, any farther. Uh, and that was developed with, along with a number of his co- colleagues over the course of a couple of decades. And it was very, very controversial. And, and as I said earlier, that, like, this is where I thought, this is like what I thought the revolution that I was going to write about but it's that th- those ideas have evolved. If people tried to figure out, well, what is the central governor? Let's put put me in a brain scanner. Show me where the the central governor is. And it turns out to be not not so simple. So there's another theory that uh, it's associated with a guy named Samuel Marcora. He calls it the psychobiological theory. And and in his eyes, at least, it's it's much simpler and more direct. That really endurance is about your sense of effort and how it matches up against your motivation, how hard you're willing to push. So if if I go for a run. And I start breathing hard and my heart starts pounding and lactate starts accumulating in my legs. Those are all real things, but none of them directly stop me. What they, all they do is contribute to this sense, to my sense of effort, my subjective sense of effort. And if that sense of effort gets too high, then I slow down or I stop. And, and the, that seems like a semantic difference, right? Like, do your muscles directly stop you or do they just tell your brain to stop you? But th- what it implies is that you can changes in your brain, whether you don't, whether you're directly manipulating your brain or, or some other f- unknown factors are, are manipulating your brain can change the limits of your endurance without any changes in your, in your muscles. So whether it's smiling or, or some other technique that shouldn't have any impact on your heart rate or your lactate levels or anything like that can actually, uh, affect your endurance. So there's a lot of controversy on exactly how the brain influences performance. But I think what most people would agree on now is that your subjective sense of effort, which seems like this really abstract concept is actually a pretty good indicator of whether you're going to be able to, to continue or not. So that's another thing, I guess, these controversies is what, what I found interesting about the book is that, I mean, you cite so many researchers and, and, and scientists and Noakes' name comes up so, so many times. I wish it kept the tally uh, throughout, but so there's, there's always the people who have the counter argument against, you know, whatever someone like Noakes or Marcora's findings are. How did you, I guess, like find yourself on the side that, that you agree with them and that, that, that you think what, that their side is, you know, I guess the right side. Cause there's, I'm sure there's, there's going to be people who read the book and are be like, well, you know, I, I, if I don't agree with, with, you know, with Noakes and I just don't, I don't think I'll agree with most of the book. Yeah, this you know this is really tough. It's you know a challenge with writing about ongoing science and and controversial science. And if you tune into Twitter to you know some of the the feeds from some of the scientists who were are extensively quoted in the, in the book, you find that they're you know they're tearing each other apart. They they you know they hate each other. It's personal, and uh, and, and it's also professional. Like they disagree with each other's ideas, and so writing about the, this was difficult. And so I had to, I had to kind of make a determination, um, to what extent am I going to write, be just report what various people think, to what extent am I going to try and impose my own conclusions? And, and of course, in the studies that I've chosen to cite and the, the way I've chosen to tell these stories, I'm imposing my opinions to a certain degree, but I ended up not going all the way. Like I don't really pick a winner between the central governor and the psychobiological theory. I don't know the answer. And I'm, you know, the, the way those theories are now, I'm not convinced that there's actually a, a really fundamental difference between them. Although there certainly are some technical differences, but I don't know that those differences are, are as important as they seem to the protagonists, although they would totally disagree with me on that. Um, w- one of the things I did, so f- the first proofreader 
of the full manuscript uh, was a guy named Mark Burnley, who's a, a an exercise scientist at the University of Kent in Britain. And the reason I asked him to read it is because I, I went and gave a talk at the University of Kent maybe three years ago. And uh, and the talk was kind of a preview of the ideas in the book. It was the the, the mind's role in, in setting the limits of endurance. And afterwards, I saw on Twitter he had posted uh, a, a comment just saying, you know, Alex, that, that was a that was a good and well presented talk. I didn't agree with any of it, but but you presented the ideas nicely. And I thought, and and I you know I knew him, I knew him well enough on Twitter that I knew he's he's a straight shooter and and says what he thinks, but he's an honest guy and he's he's like very kind of. Uh, impartial. And so I thought, Hey, I'm going to ask Mark to read this book because if anyone's going to see the, the flaws and the weak points, you know, he, he has his own views and, and, and he disagrees with them in some cases, but what I was aiming to do was present what evidence, what evidence existed and present it fairly and hopefully acknowledge some of the the flaws. And so he, he very, very kindly agreed to read the whole manuscript for me and he gave me very detailed comments and, and, you know, his, his, his main comment back was, you know, Alex, I was gnashing my teeth sometimes while reading this because I don't love all these results, but I think you did a fair job of, of assessing the, of, of, you know, presenting them fairly and not overstating what the evidence finds and acknowledging the weak points. And, and I made some changes based on his comments too. So I a hundred percent guarantee there's people out there who, who detest the book and, and, and think it's, it's a, whole, a bunch of lies, damn lies. But I did my best to, to, to kind of hear from the critics before I had, before I would had finalized the book so that I could, but both to make sure it was, it was kind of semi bulletproof, but also cause I'm, you know, I, I don't want to say something that's wrong. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing what the, what the, uh, the criticisms are. Yeah, that's every book, though. So you'll always have critics, I'm sure. <laughs> if you don't, you haven't said anything interesting, right? <laughs> exactly. So I want to talk about uh, smiling. You brought it up a couple times uh, already uh, on the podcast. And so for a lot of runners, this is going to be very interesting because uh, I guess it, it kind of went viral for a bit on uh, last uh, winter when uh, there was an article about well, you had your own article about, you know, smiling and its effects on running and some of the benefits. And a lot of people immediately thought of Kipchoge smiling 30K into the Breaking 2 attempt. And um, I actually, it was brought up during a talk that he was at in New York City. And so I I pretty much was recorded what he said and I wrote it down. And so just briefly, I'll read what Kipchoge said at the talk, uh, this is before the New York City Marathon, he said, I don't run with my legs, I run with my heart and my mind. The mind is the one that controls the body. The best remedy or medication for the mind is to be happy. When you smile and you're happy, you can trigger the mind to feel your legs. And so in the book, I guess, like, what are some of uh, the other body signals that you came across that, I guess, help performance while, while, while you're writing the book? Yeah. So, I mean, just to, 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 to say a few words about the smiling stuff and I, I, that tweet when you, uh, when you shared Kipchoge's quote was amazing. It's just so, so interesting to hear, to hear his insights. So for me, I think this is the reason I like, the reason I bring this up is, is it's kind of a great encapsulation of the kind of stuff that I would have viewed as just complete garbage. Like, Hey, if you believe that more power to you, but it's obviously ridiculous. And it's like, even, uh, you know, earlier this week I was on, on the subway and, and, and I looked across and someone had a, uh, a Lululemon yoga bag and they have like lots of slogans on the, all over the bag. And you know, all these kind of feel good slogans. And one of them was like, you know, if once you set goals, you activate your subconscious computer. And I was like, Huh. That kind, that that kind of sounds like what I said in my book. Is is my book a, a you know a giant Lululemon yoga slogan? Um, and and as like and I you know I had this moment of of existential crisis, but I thought to myself, okay, no, what I did in the book was take a lot of messages that that people have been saying for a long time. But I looked at I basically the book. You could look at the book as a giant you know nine year exercise in me trying to look at the science and convince myself that some of this stuff is actually worth paying attention to. And the smile, the smiling stuff is a classic example. It's like 10 years ago, if Kipchoge says that to me, I'm like, pat, 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 okay, you're the greatest marathoner in history, but I, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Uh, now I'm a little more humble about that. And so, you know, 
Kipchoge feels it works for him. And actually, as you know, as you're saying, there's there's some scientific studies that that seem to see a benefit and offer some ways of understanding why smiling might actually help. And so that it's much easier for me to say not only to other people, but to myself that, Hey, you know, like you should pay attention to your, to what's on your face. Like, you know, maybe you don't always need that super effort grimace, you know, in the middle of a tempo run, you can relax your face and it doesn't slow your legs down and it may make things feel easier. So to, to answer, sorry, that was a long preamble no, to answer I, your actual question. Um, <laughs> um, like in terms of other stuff, I think the, the a very connected to that thought uh, and, and maybe the most sort of useful takeaway from the book is the idea of self-talk, which is again, another one of those things that's like, um, you know, people say it, I didn't believe it, but now I look at the research and I'm like, Oh, you know, I, I should, I should pay attention to this. And this is just this idea that look in the middle of a race or a workout or, or whatever situation in life, we all have a sort of internal monologue. And in a lot of cases, certainly I know for me, a lot of the, you know, that internal monologue is often, you know, giving you plenty of reasons to believe that you're about to fail you know, saying, well, you know, why did you go out so hard again? Oh, this hurts so much. This is going to be a disaster. Boy, everyone's going to laugh at you or whatever. And if you can identify those negative thoughts and, and, you know, it's not just a question of like, just think happy thoughts. You have to listen to those negative thoughts and, and kind of grapple with them and say, which, well, do they, first of all, do they have a point? Am I thinking to myself, oh, you didn't do enough long runs. Well, maybe that's true. Like maybe, maybe you need to change that negative thought, not by thinking happy thoughts, but by preparing better next time. But some of them are are definitely going to be irrational and you want to kind of replace those with, with different thoughts. Like, yeah, I've trained for this. I'm ready for this. I can do this. You know, if, why not me? So, uh, you know, and there's studies that, you know, great athletes have often always done things like this. And I, I really think like one of the big takeaways for me from breaking two was it's like, I look at Elliot Kipchoge and I think science doesn't really have a lot to teach him about having a great mindset. Um, the science is useful because maybe it can help the rest of us be a little bit more like Elliot Kipchoge, not because it's going to make Elliot Kipchoge into a 152 marathon or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, so the self-talk I think has, has some interesting potential. Uh, so I guess the, the way the book, I guess was described to me, or it might be in the intro or I read it somewhere beforehand. It was just like, it's not a running book. And you refer to uh, your own experience as a, as a runner, throughout the book a bunch um when it came to finding examples like you know climbing everest and stuff like that how did you i guess like try and get a better understanding of what that feels like because it's like for to for examples relating to to running it's it's super easy you've been there before but for you know cyclists and uh you know these climbers how did you i guess you know get a better understanding of those yeah that yeah that's left to my own devices i could have filled the book up with with running stories you know like for every situation right you can think of oh that reminds me of the you know european championships of (laughs) nine (laughs) and it's like you know you want it to be bigger than that and i think even for runners it's a better book because of that because by by being forced by forcing myself to look elsewhere it broadened my kind of conceptions or, or my understanding of endurance. And like you said, it's, I, I definitely, um, it germinated as a running book. Like it came from my experiences as running, but it's not a running book. And I, I was consciously trying to speak more broadly to the idea of endurance, which I ended up defining as, you know, the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. So I think it has, it's, it's a really broad concept, not just on a metaphorical level, but actually the process of enduring really is transferable, but, but between, uh, you know, tasks both in sport and, and in other aspects of life. But yeah. So looking elsewhere, like for example, looking at the free diving literature and, you know, both, both the actual scientific literature and some of the you know books like James Nestor's book, uh, deep, uh, it was a great sort of introduction to that world. And, you know, like I hadn't read that book before and it was like, it, it really broadened my, conception and so now when people are asking me like okay so like real limits face false limits what you know what what's the difference here the easiest example for me is to talk about breath holding which where the where the world record is like 11 minutes and 35 seconds for just a standard breath hold with no artificial you know 
for your oxygen that or anything. was super eye-opening because you know for a common person who hasn't gone into that you know the side of the science it's like all you think of is like oh david blaine that one time you know try <laughs> exactly and he's using oxygen and it's a, a little different and, and so it's like oh there's no trickery here this is not a magician these are just guys who've learned to ignore the 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 warning signals in their body the, so the carbon dioxide levels trigger the warnings which all of us feel at like 90 seconds or two minutes and figure it's over these guys can get to the real limit which is which is oxygen so uh, you know i think that clarified my thinking about everything to to have that experience so uh, the depth and the sort of nuance and the subtlety of my descriptions of climbing Everest or free diving or, you know, being a miner in South Africa a hundred years ago are not the same as the depth and nuance of my descriptions of running because I've lived running. And so that, that's just, just the way of the world, right? Like it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a multiple lifetimes to write the book, but, but, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time reading up on it. And so I hope I, I hope I did them justice and you know, I haven't heard from any like irate freedivers yet, but maybe they're just, they're working on their letters right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think it was, I think it was helpful. And I think it's, it's a, sort of a forced broadening that was useful, but, but I, I'm never going to know as much about uh, freediving as I am about running. And that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's okay. Because the cyclist example where, you know, the happy faces flash and all that, they, I mean, that strengthened like the, the smiling, uh, the, the smiling case that you had. And I, I mean, if you would have presented the Kipchoge one, I was like, oh, that's great. I mean, that's a good example of running, but it goes beyond that and it could be applied to, to other ones. So that was like, that was another example in the book where I was like, you know, it's, it's great that he's, it's, this is not just a running book. Yeah, it's it, the the it's it's amazing the commonalities and and you know like you know in our different silos we're all wrestling with similar things right and 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 you can learn a lot by we all know this in theory right but it's 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 always a challenge to reach across and to try and understand well what are those guys doing in cycling what what is wrong with them why do they why do they dress like that <laughs> you know? uh, see I'm sure you've gotten asked a bunch of times about breaking two uh, but you know you've got a bunch of runners here listening uh, so. I guess what was your, you kind of hinted at it a little bit already, but what was your big takeaway from the Breaking 2 project? Because I guess Kipchoge walked away with the feeling that, you know, now he's able to tell himself he went as fast as possible on that given day and he got a, the most out of himself, both physically and mentally. What were, I guess, some of the key observations you took away from that? Yeah, it was a fascinating project. And, you know, we all know there, there was lots of criticism of it too. And, and, uh, uh, actually, I just I was exchanging emails with David Epstein today, and he introduced me to a, a term called Janusian thinking, which is holding up two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time, uh, in, which apparently is good for creativity or something like that. Um, that reminds me of Breaking Two, where it's like, is it uh, you know a massive crass marketing stunt by Nike, or is it an amazing scientific exploration of of human limits? Like it's kind of both, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I recognize the commercial aspects and the, and the, the marketing aspects. I also thought it was a pretty cool experience. Um, in terms of the science and tech, I want, you know, one of my big takeaways was, um, I, I feel like there, there was a lot of Kipchoge in there, uh, and, a lot, uh, you know, less of the, I think the shoes made a difference. I think the drafting made a difference, but, it's like there, there wasn't like a for for the amount of time and effort they expended. I'm I'm not sure there were a lot of like, uh, you know, real breakthroughs in training techniques or or uh, or even pacing or things like that. So I, I I think I think people who talked to Kipchoge, right? Like they they whether it's a an, an illusion or not, they walked away the with the impression that a lot of a lot of the miracle was was in him in in his kind of Yoda like aura. Oh, he's a walking uh, philosopher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, maybe it's just because he has such a great personality, we're all we we fall for it. And then in fact, you know, he's a two hundred eight guy without the shoes on. I you know who who knows? But it's certainly an easy story to believe that you know he was tough. And and one of the things, even just in the last couple last week or so, Ross Tucker posted some some data on world record graphs. Now in my book, I, I re reproduced some of Ross Tucker's work showing that there's a, a U-shaped curve that in, if you look at world records for 5,000 and 10,000, you find that they tend to start relatively quick and then settle into a steady pace and then finish relatively quick. And this is often cited as kind of evidence that the brain is holding back a little till it knows that uh, that you're approaching the finish line. So Ross pointed posted some, some sort of uh, reanalysis of that data showing that 
in the most recent world records since the 90s, the, the fast start is kind of fading away so, as people get their pacing more dialed in more, uh, you know, for world record attempts. So it's kind of a perfectly flat line and then a little sprint at the end. So, and, and his, he was hypothesizing like maybe the limits, maybe when we we're going to reach that point where someone is running as fast as possible, when you have a perfectly flat line, when, when they've dialed in the pacing so much that they get it just right, that they're right on the razor's edge the whole way and they have nothing left in the last kilometer speed up and watching the breaking two race. I remember, you know, as Kipchoge started to fall behind at sort of 23, 24 miles, he was still within striking distance. All he needed was a, you know, a decent kick. And I thought I've looked at the data. Everyone has a decent kick when they set a, a world record, maybe Kipchoge is going to have a decent kick and he didn't fall apart. He didn't blow up, but he stayed pretty steady. It was like, there was no kick, but there was no drop off. So it's like, there, there's a, if you want to make the case that Kipchoge was like, pushing the absolute limits on that day of what he was capable of there it is a, a highly motivated guy with all the incentive in the world to find an extra few seconds he, he didn't he didn't have that kick because i think he was again partly because of the way the race was set up where there was no competitive element in the last half of the race it was just him he didn't have to worry about holding off to make sure someone caught him or anything like that he was able to just lay it all out on the line and try and stick with that car as long as possible and i yeah i don't think he left a lot on the table that day and then I guess what do you make, I guess, of the the performances by the other two runners as well? Because I guess the after the after uh, the aftermath of that is just like you know we see them run in Chicago and it's you know it, it was Zerzne Teresa is just like same he's the same as as what he was before. If not, I mean he didn't even run as fast as he did at breaking two. He ran much slower. So it's like I guess you you kind of are right where it was like a lot of that was on Kipchoge and it just shows based off the results of the other two guys. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's complicated, right? Because uh, the other two guys were forced to go out and run the first half of the marathon in 60. So we'll never know, like, you know, t- talking to the scientists after it was like, okay, all, all the sub two stuff aside, if you were just out there today to, to get each guy to run as fast as possible, how would you have paced to Desse and Desissa? And they were saying, uh, probably, uh, to Desse, they thought pace him for right around 203 and then hope that he'd be able to finish strong and run 20230. Uh, Desissa, he'd been hurt and stuff, so probably not much better than 204. Like maybe pace him 203 and hope that he can hang on for a 204 or something like that. So it's like the performances that day were not representative of, of their capabilities. I am surprised that both of them have been mediocre. <laughs> since then no offense to them I'm, i mean they're faster than me obviously but i i was i was expecting i was expecting Tedesse to at least go out there and run a 205 or something like that uh, uh and and desissa too when he was healthy but uh so so it's it's kind of an enigma it's kind of like it's it's hard to know what to make of of uh uh you know how much they were being helped how much their 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 confidence has been absolutely destroyed by being on this world stage and having everyone kind of rooting against them and then seeing them you know uh, you know having to finish a solo marathon like that it's 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 it, it, i kind of feel bad for them to be honest yeah and it's the marathon there's so many other factors that you know, could just play out uh on that given day so just real quick i guess one of the sponsors of like this show uh, the podcast is you know morton and there i guess so you had a couple uh, i think early on with one of the runners world calm there was something about you know, how they were implementing fueling and for guys like Decisa and uh, today say like it was something that was kind of like a, a weird concept for them. There's still some, I guess, scientific data that is being that's, I guess, in the works from the company itself. But I guess what are you most curious about with with that product? So so that's actually a funny story because, yeah, they, 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 one of the things, one of the big scientific aspects of the Breaking 2 project was was getting the, the fueling right. And they were doing all these extensive testing, not just using any one sports drink, but c- coming up with these custom blends of multiple different flavors, multiple different carbohydrate types to try and find the type of carbohydrate that would you know, maximize absorption rate, maximize tolerability, uh, maximize palatability. So they'd want to keep drinking it. And they were really working hard to get this magic cocktail. Uh, and you know, at the, at the end of the race, I remember I checked my Twitter and I saw Morton had tweeted to me saying, Oh, you know, the, the nutrition strategy was interesting. Uh, Kipchoge was drinking Morton and 
I, you know, I went, I was like, uh, I don't think so, dude. So like I went and found one of the Nike scientists and, and uh, I said, what, you know, what's going on? And, and, and what was Kipchoge drinking? And he said, well, he was drinking our carbohydrate drink, but you know, if, if you, you can go check with, with Brett Kirby, the guy who was riding the bicycle and handing him the bottles if you want. So I went and found Brett and I was like, I just got this tweet. He says that Kipchoge was drinking Morton. And Brett said, no, 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 that's not, that's not the case. I was handing him the bottles. You, you can go ask his agent, Valentin, who filled the bottles if you want. And so I went and asked his agent. I was like, what's the deal here? Was he drinking this Swedish drink? And he was like, yeah, yeah. He started experimenting with it last month. He liked it and he decided to go with it. So Nike had no idea that he was drinking more. <laughs> so, you know, as, and as far as the, the science goes, like I, so I've, I've kind of resisted writing about Morton, even though it's, it's a pretty exciting story, like in the sense that, I mean, it's, it's hard to find an, an elite marathon or endurance athlete who hasn't experimented with, experimented with it and said, I love it. So it's like, it's got fantastic word of mouth. Is it actually being oxidized or are they pooping out hydrogel the next day? Like, I have no idea. And I, you know, I like to think that the, the, they, they know what they're doing. And I've, I've been in touch with the company, you know, regularly and they, they have independent research going on. It's supposed to be submitted in the spring yeah. yeah well it's supposed to be submitted in january or february or march it's being pushed back but i understand that's the nature of, of, of scientific research it's always like that so i i'm 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 open to it being a a, a, a you know an advance and a cool thing but I'll, I'll 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 withhold my judgment till i see the data and if it does that's it's it sounds like it could be a pretty cool thing because certainly the the word of mouth is positive definitely so going back to referencing i guess some of your own running within the book uh, it's kind of like a cool hypothetical. So knowing everything that you do, you know, now about, you know, the way the body operates, the mind operates. Uh, and I guess it's like, the, the question is like, what advice would you give you? It's like really hard to pin down like one piece of advice. So I'm going to go a different direction and say, if you could coach younger version of you, how, do you think you'd make, what kind of tweaks, I guess, would you make to possibly become a better athlete. It's hard to say if you would. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, it, there's no simple switch that we can, we can turn. And it's like, Oh, if only I'd known about the, the 12 by a thousand meters workout. If I'd known that I'm supposed to get faster on the sixth interval, then oh, I would have been a, a contender. Um, but honestly, like the, you know, and, and I, I've, I've thought about this a ton. So, uh, you know, if I had a time machine or if I was coaching, you know, Alex jr, um, which got, I hope I never end up coaching <laughs> Alex Jr. But uh, the first thing I would I would say is to take take sports psychology seriously and to try things like motivational self talk. And you know, it's it kind of sucks because it's like I'd be giving you know 1996 Alex advice that already existed then. Not that it's like even if I'm coming back in the time machine, I'm like, no, I don't have anything from the future for you. I don't have a new supplement. I don't have a magic new workout. What I have for you is advice to take seriously stuff that you're actually ignoring when the sports psychologist tells it to you because in my best races, I was, I was outperforming people in my training group who, who could train with me by a lot. Like I was, I was an over, you know, like there's the classic, do you, do you race at above or below your, your training? And I, when things were going well, I raced far above my training, but things didn't always go well. And sometimes I raced below my training and and in fact, as time went on, I kind of, I, I, I got more and more into this belief that, you know, I wasn't as talented as, or as, as, or as well-trained as some of the people I was racing against, but I had an ability to get more out of myself. But that creates the expectations. Like every time the race started, I wasn't thinking I just have to do what I'm ready to do. I was thinking I have to perform a miracle in order to, to beat all these guys who just have to do what comes, comes naturally. So anyway, all of us just to say, I, I was, I was a bit of a mental wreck <laughs> and I think I could have done a lot better by understanding that this isn't just something you sort of, you know, wrestle with and say, come on, Alex, get tougher that, that you can think systematically about how to change the monologue in your head, how to, how to, uh, how to affect your perception of, of your performances and, and of, of the signals from your body and from your competitors. So yeah, it's, again, it's, it's kind of a, I, I know I'm sort of saying the same thing that I said before, but yes, self-talk and more generally sports psychology is, is, um, and I, and I don't, I don't view it as a magic bullet. It's not like, I don't know if it would have produced better results for me in the long run, but I think it would have given me a shot because I think s some of my 
some of my regrets from my competitive career are races where I was fit, but I didn't get everything out of myself on the day for whatever reason. On this self-talk point, so just like, I mean, you mentioned you saw the Lululemon bag on the subway, but I was thinking I take the subway to work every day. It's a 30 minute ride. Sometimes I'm reading a book. Sometimes I'm, you know, listening to a podcast, but if I wanted to, I guess like the, you know, those 30 minutes I have water, like some basic things I could be doing, you know, to possibly strengthen, I guess my mindset when it comes to, I'm not doing anything athletic in that moment, but you know, for later on. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, so I think the self-talk stuff, I think you, you have to you have to sit down and think pretty carefully. It's not like a, a casual, like, uh, you want to think carefully about what you have been, what has been going through your head and identify ideas for what should be going through your head and practice it. Um, in terms of using the subway time, I mean, I think reading a good book is always a good call, but, but, uh, you know, I, in the book, I talk a little bit about brain, brain endurance training and this idea that you can, you can strengthen your mental endurance, uh, by taxing it. And I'm, I'm kind of, kind of torn about it in the sense that it, it's, I tried it. It's really hard. It's really boring. <laughs> I don't, don't really wish it on anyone, but I know they're working on an app actually, uh, that would, instead of having to have a computer in front of you that, so that you could do it, uh, it could be like an auditory app. So you you have your headphones in and you do it with your mobile phone. And so this idea is coming down the pike that you may be able to do some, some brain, some things that enhance your, basically your response inhibition, your ability to, to resist doing, taking the easy path. Uh, well, it, you know, when you have half an hour on a commute or, or, or even do it on the run or on the bike. Um, but yeah, you know, like I, honestly, when you think about your, your half hour commute, it's like, uh, you, you, I, Read, I, 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 I'm not actually being uh, uh, sarcastic here. It's like, I don't know that you wouldn't get more out right. of reading <laughs> interesting stuff, uh, broadening, like you were talking earlier about thinking across domains and, and not, you know, you know, rather than focusing on like, what do I think about when I run? Uh, r- reading a good book about freediving might actually be a better way of, of, uh, of, of, of helping yourself to think about limits in a different way and, and, and learning things from other domains. So uh, yeah, that, maybe that's a cop-out answer, but uh, <laughs> that's what comes to mind. Okay. So free diving book, what are some other books you think listeners would enjoy, uh, you know, after reading your book or that you would recommend, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, if, if anyone hasn't read the sports gene, um, you know, that's a, that's a serious error that they should correct uh, right away, you know, and, and Mark's book, Faster, Higher, Stronger is really a really interesting look. Uh, the book I'm just finishing right now is, um, Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, which is about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, uh, who, who Kahneman was the Nobel prize winner in 2000 for like, basically for the, the ways that we think incorrectly. He, he wrote a book called Thinking, uh, Fast and Slow, maybe four or five years ago, which was very, very dense and hard to get through, but fascinating. And so, I, I, you know, in a sense, I think Michael Lewis's book about the the making of that research is kind of an easier way to access some of the the really fascinating insights about the way we we uh, we think wrong. Now, is that does that make you faster? I don't know, but I think understanding how we think is kind of this broader theme that 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 I think uh, you know. It is useful to understand because it's maybe it's a, maybe it's a weak connection, but it's like we're making a cognitive error when we, when we are running and, and believe that we can't go any faster. And so trying to understand the ways, the many ways that we can, we can make, we can leap to the wrong conclusion, I think is, is kind of useful. Uh, we'll run through, uh, we got two listener questions that were sent in. So we got Sean Darty asks um, if they had access to modern training, nutrition information and shoe materials that runners have now, do you have, do you think that any marathoners from the short Frank shorter or Bill Rogers competitive era would have had a chance at breaking two. So this is actually like kind of fun because I guess the, in your book, you kind of explore, you know, what if Alberto Salazar's, you know, hydration strategy would have been better. Like, could he have been a little bit faster? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, guys like shorter, you know, what did he run two? Did he only ran two ten, right? And, and I think so, yeah. Rogers ran two Oh nine Bill Rogers. Um, so they're as good as any Americans 
we have right now. Right. <laughs> like you send them to the, you know, Nike Oregon project. Are they going to run 205? Uh, I have no trouble believing that, you know, from 205 to two flat, that's a long way or even to 202 or 203. And so, you know, we, we I don't want to get into the whole Kenyan running thing, but is, is anyone out born outside the Rift Valley ready to, to run 20257 or let or two flat 25? I don't know. So look, if, if I, if I had to make it a guess, I would say uh shorter Rogers, those guys, they could be competitive with, um, probably with Galen Rupp, certainly with any, any other, uh, American runner today. And, and maybe even with Galen Rupp, cause they're obviously proven winners at, you know, at, at the highest levels. Um, I, I, I tend to think that guys like Kipchoge are, are at a level that no one has, has seen before. Yeah. So do you find yourself often just like kind of playing these, these little hypotheticals in your head, just based off of science, but with like, you know, other, other runners. Cause I mean, you are a big running fan yourself. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. You know, like that's how else do you get through long runs, right? Like <laughs> could, could I have beat that guy under those circumstances? Could this guy from history, um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, uh, well, we can never know the answers, but we can certainly, it's certainly fun to speculate about them. Uh, another listener sent in a question says, is this in relation to your article, here's how sleep low training, uh, can make you faster and adapting to burn fat, uh, fat as fuel. Uh, they were just wondering, it's like, can you elaborate a little bit on the low carb philosophies in training? Yeah. So th- and I should differentiate here. Like, obviously, there's a big movement to, to suggest that eating a, 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 you know, eating a low carb, high fat diet is the the way to make yourself healthier and and faster and so on. That's that's a debate I don't really have the answer to. Um, um, you know, I think it's a an approach that people can use. I don't think it's necessarily better or will make people faster. But what he's asking about is this idea of not necessarily eating a low carb diet, but doing some of your training sessions in a state where your carb stores are empty. So the, you know, the simplest example of this would be you wake up in the morning and you go for a run before breakfast. Now in reality, your carb stores aren't that low. If you do that, you're not really going to get a full depletion effect. You, you might have to do a pretty hard workout the evening before, then eat some dinner that doesn't have any car or has very little carbohydrate in it, which is going to leave you feeling crappy. Then you, then you sleep, then you wake up and go for say a tempo run. And it has to be a reasonably long tempo run to start stimulating fat burning because you have no carbs. So you're forcing your body to adapt. For the last 10 years, this has been a really big uh, research area where people are looking to see if they can get an extra edge out of it. And uh, the evidence is still pretty ambiguous because the problem is if you do a training session with low carbs, you're going to run slower. You're going to feel it's going to feel harder. So you, 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 you gain something. It's like the nutritional equivalent of a weighted vest but you also lose something. So I, I actually do a lot of running first thing in the morning with either nothing in my stomach or, you know, have a, a bite of banana. Uh, that's more for convenience than, than, than anything else. And I think it, it's such a, a, a marginal potential for gain that I, I, you know, I would, I would say experiment with it if, 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 if that's the kind of thing that you find fun, but uh, don't feel like you're missing out on, on anything at this point, because people still haven't dialed into on, to exactly how to actually get a benefit out of it. All right, we're going to run through the, the final three questions I do with all my guests. So the first one uh, is, what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on letsrun.com? <laughs> <laughs> they gave you a great review of the book, so we'll get that out of the way first. <laughs> yeah, that was very, very nice of them. Uh, I, was, I was pleased with the review. Yeah, look, the... the, the the meanest things I've seen about myself are all in the wake of breaking two. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people who, there were a lot of people who, uh, had, had, uh, opinions on whether I was a sellout to Nike and, and things like that. And I will just say that, look, unlike, you know, Nike flew in hundreds of people or not, they flew in a lot of journalists, you know, business class, five-star hotel, Ed Caesar and from Wired and myself from Runner's World were the two people who whose magazines paid our own way, coach class, and we stayed in separate hotels uh, down the road from where everyone was, you know, eating the the, the foie gras. So we tried not to do that. I understand the sentiment, but it, yeah, it, it, you know that stuff. That stuff kind of hurts. Like it's like I, I've really tried to be impartial, and it's like uh, you're a sellout. You're a Nike show, like blah blah blah. <laughs> Never anything about your own running career back in the day. 
<laughs> I I dreamed of being torn to shreds on Let's Run. I, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I'm not going to, yeah. I don't think I ever actually, you know, posted about myself to try and elicit comments, but yeah, no, I was, I was never quite, quite good enough to, to attract uh, vitriol. Uh, the second question I ask every guest is uh, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, uh, who would it be? And where would this run take place? Yeah, for me, it would definitely be Roger Bannister, um, you know, somewhere, somewhere in Oxford running along the banks of the, whatever river it is in Oxford, I can never remember. Uh, you know, it's a cliche, but that moment stands out for me. And also his approach to sports, even though it's, it has dated a little bit, but his, his kind of feeling for why you run and what you get out of it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I would love to go for a run with him. Have you met him? I have not. No. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know what? I ran a race in 1998, a cross country race in Oxford where he was the starter. So, I don't think he remembers me since there were, two, you know, 200 people in the race, but I remember him. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, we've talked about Epstein a couple of times on the show now, but I'm super jealous of him because he did the Where Are They Now story uh, on Bannister uh, for SI when he was here. And so he's got that experience uh, of having interacted with him. It's you, it, so much jealousy there. <laughs> Very cool. From what I understand, he was still getting emails from 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 Bannister later. Like, uh, yeah, that he that actually basically struck up a friendship. So, uh, yeah, I was definitely. I'm I, I'm far less jealous of David's book than I am of his friendship with uh, with Roger Bannister. <laughs> definitely. And the last one has nothing to do with running. It's uh, you have 25 basketball shots from half court. If you make one, you win 25 million dollars. If you make none, you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots? Full size gym? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've spent a long time, a lot of time shooting half court shots, but I came from a really small high school, graduating class of like uh, 60 people or so. So our gym was like postage stamp size. So it's actually, it was like an NBA three, basically. And even that I found pretty hard. So <laughs> let's have some fun with this question real quick. Cause it's like, it's let's, let's test the human mind here. So, there's a bunch of athletes who have gone on the show and they've said, yes, they've said that they would attempt the shots. It's crazy. Right. But it's, that's why they're great athletes because yeah. they believe in themselves even totally irrationally. Right. So, you know, we, in your book, you talk about, I guess, like, you know, sometimes there's that last ditch effort that you have and, you know, you surpass the expectations you had for yourself. So say I got to 24 shots without making it on that 25th, like what's, what should your mind be telling you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that, I think that would work more if it's like, can you throw it far enough? But like, cause if you're going to dig too deep, you're just going to throw it right over the backboard. <laughs> but I, I, I just, I, a total segue. I, I, I would like to say that I played basketball in high school and there was one time when the, uh, it was it was just actually approaching half halftime, not the end of the game. And the the the, the team, the crowd started chanting, counting down five, four, three, two, one. And I was still not even at half court, so I just chucked the ball up underhand. And uh, that was like the only the only three pointer I hit in regulation play. I actually hit the the half court shot underhand just before halftime. <laughs> the only sour note was that then the ball went in and I was like, I'm the man. And then I looked up and there were still ten seconds on the clock. The, the, the crowd had fooled me. They'd done the premature countdown. That's gold. <laughs> All right, Alex. Um, so the book Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance is available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, wherever books are sold. Definitely highly recommend everyone check it out. Alex, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it, and I definitely appreciate getting to tell my uh, basketball half-court shot story. <laughs> That does it for this episode of the City Smack Podcast. Many thanks to Alex Hutchinson for taking the time to do it. Um, a reminder to all sitwits, check out Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It's out wherever books are sold. And actually, if you stuck around with us this long, we have a giveaway. We have one copy of the book that we're going to give to the sitwit who tweets at, at Sidious Mag and at Sweat Science. What was Alex's 1500-meter PR from back in the day? So he was really good. He ran somewhere between 340 and 345, and I'll let you guys guess. What's out there on the IWF page, I don't believe is accurate, but uh, he did send me a tweet. It, he gave me the time, and I will give it to the first person who gives me the closest guest. Um, so tweet at us, 
and you could find yourself with a copy of Endure. This episode is also brought to you by Morton. It is the world's most carbohydrate-rich sports drink, and it's being used by all the major marathon winners. Um, and this weekend, we might be able to see if that streak continues. Every men's major marathon winner has been drinking Morton since September 2016, with Kenanisa Bekele starting that streak. So we'll see if it's still uh, standing after this weekend with the Tokyo Marathon. I think I think it's it will. Um, so a reminder, check out Morton. That's M-A-U-R-T-E-N dot com uh, slash shop and use promo code CMP20 for 20% off your order. That does it for this episode. My guess for next week's episode is still up in the air, but I'll keep you guys posted on who it might be. And a reminder to check out all the other podcasts on the Cities Mag Podcast Network. Um, you got some cool shows. We have another new episode of Price of a Mile with Woody Kincaid. Uh, where he interviews Kate Grace, and we just launched another show called Running Things Considered, where we have a really honest conversation about all the questions that you've probably had maybe on the long run or in the locker room, and uh, it can go in a lot of different directions. So Ryan Sterner and Stephen Kirsch and Tom's Hank are on that show, and uh, you might get a laugh or two if you check it out. That's Running Things Considered. It's on iTunes. Um, I'll see you guys next week. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running.